All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 49 for April 2023. White Collar Crime, J. Edward Gas Addicts, Sam Stars and Stripes Ashbridge, and Joseph Miller Houston. is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. J. Edward Addicts made his fortune in the gas industry, but decided he wanted to be a United States Senator. He spent much of his wealth in a fruitless attempt at achieving this goal. Sam Ashbridge could give patriotic speeches at the drop of a hat, and he was elected Philadelphia's mayor in 1900. He left office four years later a rich man. Fellow tour guide and Philadelphia author and historian Tom Keels will tell you his story. Joseph Miller Houston was an up-and-coming architect who got the plum job of designing Pennsylvania's state capitol. Instead of leading him to even bigger jobs, it became his professional downfall. These three people are the subjects of this month's All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, White Collar Crime. Pop Civics Quiz. What's the 17th Amendment of the United States Constitution? Nope, prohibition was the 18th Amendment. The women's voting rights was the 19th Amendment. The 17th Amendment is the one that allows U.S. citizens to vote for their own United States senators. Ratified in 1912, it superseded Article 1, Section 3, Clauses 1 and 2 of the Constitution, under which senators were elected by state legislatures. The six-year term for a senator has remained a constant. Each state, regardless of size, is entitled to two senators, 
as part of the Connecticut Compromise between the small and large states. This contrasted with the House of Representatives, a body elected by popular vote, and was described as an uncontroversial decision. At the time, founding father James Wilson, the later first professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, he's buried at Christ Church Burial Ground, Anyway, he was the sole advocate of popularly electing the Senate. His proposal was defeated 10 to 1. The longer terms and avoidance of popular election turned the Senate into a body that could counter the populism of the House, which is dismissed and reassembled every two years. That's why every congressional session has a number, currently the 118th Congress. State legislatures retained the theoretical right to instruct their senators to vote for or against proposals, thus giving the states both direct and indirect representation in the federal government. Members of the Constitutional Convention considered the Senate to be parallel to the British House of Lords as an upper house containing, quote, the better men of society, end quote but improved upon as they would be conscientiously chosen by the upper houses of state legislatures for fixed terms and not merely inherited for life, as in the British system, subject to a monarch's arbitrary expansion. After the first group of senators was elected to the first Congress of 1789 to 1791, they were divided into three classes, as nearly equal in size as possible, by lot. It was also decided that each state's senators would be assigned to two different classes. Those senators grouped in the first class had their term expire after only two years. Those senators in the second class had their term expire after only four years instead of six. Now after this, all senators from those states have been elected to six-year terms, and as new states have joined the Union, their Senate seats have been assigned to two of the three classes, maintaining each grouping as nearly equal in size as possible. In this way, election is staggered. Approximately one-third of the Senate is up for re-election every two years, but the entire body is never up for re-election in the same year. These two-year intervals between elections are known as Class 1, 2, and 3. The senatorial elections of 2022 were Class 1 elections. In Philadelphia, Federalist New York Senator Philip Schuyler drew the lot for the first Class 1 of senators, the ones who initially served only two years. You probably know about Schuyler's three oldest daughters, Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy. In the 19th century, many people felt that senatorial elections were bought and sold and changed hands for favors and sums of money rather than because of the competence of the candidate. Between 1857 and 1900, the Senate investigated three elections over corruption, and in more than a century of legislative elections of U.S. Senators, ten cases were contested for allegations of impropriety. Electoral deadlocks were another issue. Because state legislatures were charged with deciding whom to appoint as Senators, the system relied on their ability to agree. Some states could not, and thus delayed sending senators to Congress. 
In a few cases, the system broke down to the point where states completely lacked representation in the Senate. Deadlocks started to become an issue in the 1850s, with a deadlocked Indiana legislature allowing a Senate seat to sit vacant for two years. The tipping point came in 1865 with the election of John P. Stockton, Democrat, New Jersey, which happened after the New Jersey legislature changed its rules regarding the definition of a quorum and was thus elected by plurality instead of by absolute majority. Eventually, legislative elections held in a state's set of election years were perceived to have become so dominated by the business of picking senators that the state's choice for senator distracted the electorate from all other pertinent issues. Sometimes, the policy stances and qualifications of state legislative candidates were ignored by voters who were more interested in the indirect Senate election. New Mexico and Arizona were admitted to the Union in January and February of 1912 as the 47th and 48th states. The conference report that would become the 17th Amendment was approved by the Senate in a 42-36 to vote on 12 April 1912, and by the House 238-39 to with 110 not voting on 13 May 1912. Nine days later, Massachusetts was the first state to ratify the proposed amendment. Less than 11 months later, on 8 April 1913, Connecticut was the 36th state to ratify the amendment, and it became law. Utah had rejected the amendment, and five states added their votes afterwards, the most recent being Rhode Island in 2014. Florida, Georgia, Kentucky... Mississippi, South Carolina, Virginia, and of course Alaska and Hawaii have never ratified the amendment. The state of Delaware rejected the amendment in 1913, but finally passed it 97 years later in 2010. It was Delaware that suffered through one of the most egregious attempts at acquiring a seat in the Senate when Philadelphia industrialist John Edward Charles O'Sullivan Attucks spent years and hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to buy a senatorial seat. John Edward Attucks, A-D-D-I-C-K-S, was born in Philadelphia on 21 November 1841. To John E.C. O'Sullivan Attucks, 1818-1883, and Margaret McLeod Turner Attucks, 1822-1898. They lived at 1102 Gerard Street. They're both interred in Section G of Laurel Hill East. He was a lineal descendant of Daniel O'Sullivan Bear of Dunbarry Castle, County Cork, Ireland, who was leader of the 16th century Munster religious wars against Elizabeth of England. He was the grandson of John Edward Charles Attucks, German consul to Philadelphia. His great-grandmother was Lady Arabella Galbraith of Scotland. Attucks was educated in Philadelphia public schools, and he entered the dry goods business for five years before he joined forces with Philadelphia grain and flour merchant Levi Knowles, 1813-1898. In 1856, when he was 15 years old, Knowles is interred at Laurel Hill East in Section K. 
It was addicts who introduced Minnesota spring wheat to eastern farmers for whom wheat had previously been harvested in other seasons. In 1864, at age 23, he married Laura Watson Butcher, 1842-1867, daughter of wealthy Philadelphia businessman Washington Butcher, 1814-1873, Laurel Hill East, K-76. He was director of the Pennsylvania Railroad, the Girard Bank, and other local businesses, along with being a deacon in the First Baptist Church at Broad and Arch. Attucks and Laura had one daughter, Florence, 1866 to 1942. But Laura died in 1867 at age 24, leaving Attucks with an infant daughter. He then married Laura's younger sister, Rosalie, 1849 to 1907. He did that two years later in 1869. This marriage lasted for almost 30 years, but it ended in a rancorous divorce in 1898 after Attucks was accused of adultery, and Rosalie even took back her maiden name of Butcher. Both sisters are buried with their parents. In 1898, soon after his divorce from Rosalie, Attucks married a third time, this time quietly in Claymont, Delaware, to Mrs. Ida Carr Wilson, 1850-1931, a widow whom he had apparently been seeing since the year after her first husband died in 1886. Ida had been named as the correspondent in the divorce. The Baltimore Sun said, quote, a prominent Wilmington clergyman will probably officiate, end quote. When Ida died in 1931, she was interred with her first husband in Wilmington. Attucks lost money in the Panic of 1873, which bankrupted more than a hundred of the nation's railroad firms and caused more than 18,000 business failures in the country. He took a chance. He diversified his wealth into real estate and railroads, along with purchasing some up-and-coming natural gas franchises in several cities. A natural gas had been discovered in the Americas in 1626. In 1816, the first private residence in the United States illuminated by gas belonged to William Henry, a coppersmith at 200 Lombard Street in Philadelphia. That same year, 1816, Baltimore became the first American city with a business lit by natural gas lamps. Philadelphians Rembrandt and Rubens Peel's Museum. A year later, the city hired Peel's Gaslight Company of Baltimore to begin laying gas mains and erecting street lamps. In 1821, William Hurt successfully dug the first natural gas well at Fredonia, New York in the United States. This led to the formation of the Fredonia Gaslight Company. At the same time, companies in other cities such as Boston Gaslight in 1822 and New York Gaslight Company in 1825 began feeding the fire. The city of Philadelphia created the first municipally owned natural gas distribution venture in 1836, the year that Laurel Hill East was founded. In the mid-19th century, Americans were making a big switch away from candles and lanterns. Before the discovery of natural gas, whale oil had dominated the world for both illumination 
and mechanical lubrication. The whaling industry peaked about the 1820s before its market was taken over by natural gas. In the second half of the 19th century, the manufactured fuel gas industry diversified from lighting to include heat and cooking uses. The threat from electrical light in the later 1870s and 1880s drove this trend strongly. The gas industry did not give up the gas lighting market to electricity immediately, as the invention of the Wellsbach mantle, a refractory mesh bag heated to incandescence by a mostly non-luminous flame within, dramatically increased the efficiency of gas lighting. Acetylene was also used from about 1898 for gas cooking and gas lighting, like the carbide lamp on a smaller scale. In the 1890s, pipelines from natural gas fields in Texas and Oklahoma were built to Chicago and other cities, and natural gas was used to supplement manufactured fuel gas supplies, eventually completely displacing it. Attics was a shrewd and somewhat ruthless businessman who could enter a market where there were numerous competitors and turn them into a monopoly. He acquired two nicknames along the way, the Napoleon of Gas and simply Gas Addicts. He bought a gas works in Jersey City and in 1882 was a principal organizer of the Chicago Gas Works. Two years later, he formed the Bay State Gas Works in Boston, which absorbed competitors from surrounding towns. He bent the Massachusetts legislature to his will, and he made vast sums of money with very little capital investment. Mayor Matthews of Boston finally forced him out of the state, saying, quote, You could search all the combinations and trusts that infest our land today, and you could not find a sharper, brighter, more acute, and more successful corporation wrecker than J. Edward Attucks. He also acquired a controlling interest in the Brooklyn Gas Company. In 1889, Attucks more or less discovered his next-door neighbor, Delaware, and he made three purchases. An eight-acre estate for himself in Claymont, 20 miles south of Philadelphia, the gas market for Wilmington, and several members of the state legislature to pass legislation very beneficial to his company. By watering stocks and manipulations and judicious investments in Siberian railroad stocks, he continued to build his fortune. One day, he decided that he would like to be a senator from Delaware, although he knew virtually nothing about the state except that it had only three counties, Newcastle, Sussex, and Kent, and 52 state senators and representatives, which was an affordable number to purchase, if necessary. He didn't know many people in the state. He also didn't know that this was DuPont turf. After the 1888 election, the one by DuPont associate Republican Anthony Higgins, Attucks told the world he would allow himself to be elected to the Senate. There wasn't a big response. Delaware natives scoffed at the carpetbagger with the high silk hat and the fur overcoat who wanted to represent them to the nation. 
Now, because of the class system, no Delaware senatorial seat came up for voting in the 1890 elections. But by 1892, when Delaware's other Senate seat came up, Attucks had assembled a faction that he named the Union Republicans. It split the Republican Party. Attucks offered $10,000 for each legislator who would vote for him. He spent more than $100,000 and he gained control of the Republican organizations in the downstate counties, Kent and Sussex, by paying taxes for people who were not qualified to vote because of their debt. Only northern county, Newcastle, was solidly in DuPont's corner. Henry DuPont, a Civil War hero, had been at work. He even wrote a letter to his friend President Benjamin Harrison and requested that Watson Sperry, editor of the Wilmington Morning News, be given a federal appointment that would take the independent editor out of Delaware politics. Sperry had been supporting another Republican by the name of Massey for senator. Such a factional dispute could hurt Higgins just when Attucks was mounting his attack. President Harrison, a Republican, took the hint. He made Sperry a special envoy on a secret mission to Persia, and Higgins was re-elected. By 1894, Attucks was listed in the records as being president of Bay State Gas Company of Delaware, the Bay State Gas Company of New Jersey, the Bay State Gas Company of Massachusetts, the Boston Gaslight Company, the Dorchester Gaslight Company, and the South Boston Gaslight Company. He redoubled his efforts for the Senate. He poured at least $150,000 into the campaign, and this time the Republicans took over the Assembly. This gave Attucks bragging rights that without his monetary infusion, the Republicans would never have taken back Delaware. He felt this had earned him the right to a seat in the U.S. Senate. But he only controlled six of the 19 Republican votes. The other 13 were committed to Henry A. DuPont, who also had his eyes set on a Senate seat. None of Attucks's or DuPont's representatives would budge, and the 11 minority Democrats refused to help either man. Thus, in 1894, no one from Delaware was elected to the U.S. Senate. And from March 1895 to January 1897, Delaware had only one U.S. Senator, Democrat George Gray. In 1897, a new senator had to be picked by the legislature. Attucks still controlled six votes, not enough to elect him, but enough to check a clear Republican majority and prevent anyone's election. Higgins was then made to step aside, and Colonel Henry DuPont again announced his candidacy, expecting Attucks's house of money to collapse. But to Henry's surprise, Attucks's camp suffered only one desertion. It was still a deadlock. DuPont was furious, and he was just as stubborn as Attucks, and he had more money. At this point, either DuPont or Attucks, depending on whom one takes as a source, but probably Attucks, made a statement that would resound in infamy through Delaware's history to this day. Me or nobody. Delaware got nobody. The personal feud between DuPont and Attucks would keep Delaware from being fully represented in the U.S. Senate for 12 
long years. One and only one each insisted would be the victor, and Delaware was the loser. After 35 ballots, the Speaker of the Senate, William T. Watson, declared no election, and he adjourned the legislature. DuPont was outraged. He insisted he would have his election. He got the Speaker of the House to declare that Watson's decision was invalid. The grounds were amazing. During the balloting, Governor Marvell had died, and Watson, as Speaker of the Senate, succeeded him under the state constitution. But the constitution did not prohibit Watson from continuing on as Speaker of the Senate, so he did, casting his ballots during the election. At no time was his vote ever challenged. But after his ruling on the U.S. Senate vote, DuPont forces, including the Speaker of the House, declared Watson had no right to rule as Speaker of the Senate and declared both his ruling and his right to vote invalid. That gave Henry the majority he needed. The Speaker of the House issued a certificate of election and Henry DuPont moved to Washington demanding the Senate seat for himself. Delaware was shocked by DuPont's chicanery. The Wilmington every evening repeated Watson's right to vote. The country was also shocked. The Philadelphia Public Ledger reiterated the position of the Wilmington paper, and even the New York Times charged that Watson's voting rights and ruling were, quote, according to the state constitution and laws of all precedents in the state, end quote. And apparently the U.S. Senate agreed. On 15 May 1896, the Senate voted to deny the seat to DuPont and sent him packing. Colonel Henry returned to Wilmington a bitter man. For 10 more years, he waged a relentless war for that Senate seat. Now, in 1898, war veteran Colonel Henry DuPont's image was boosted when he was awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroism during the Civil War Battle of Cedar Creek. The medal was a little late, 34 years to be exact, but this was typical for the times. As the Medal of Honor had grown in familiarity and admiration, aging Civil War veterans wrote to officials at the Record and Pension Office within the Adjutant General's Office requesting the medal. As a result, between 1891 In 1900, more than 500 Medals of Honor were awarded for actions during the Civil War. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain of Maine received his Medal of Honor in 1897 for his activities at Little Round Top in 1863. Laurel Hill East Frank Furness received his in 1899 for actions during the Battle of Trevilian Station in 1864. This was also a time when newspaper headlines were warning, war is now inevitable in the run-up to the Spanish-American conflict. And the government needed good relationships with the DuPonts because they were the munitions manufacturers that would sell to the government at reasonable rates for the upcoming war with Spain and expansion overseas. And Henry proudly wore his Medal of Honor at all public appearances. But the following year, Attucks controlled 21 of 50 votes in the legislature. DuPont held only eight. 
but the colonel had inherited his father's stubbornness. Now it was definitely Henry who cried, me or nobody. In 1901, Attucks had 22 votes, and again, Henry's hard-headedness denied Delaware its right to Senate representation. And for the next two years, Delaware had no representative at all in the U.S. Senate. By 1903, Delaware had become a national laughingstock and a scandal. Under pressure applied by President Theodore Roosevelt, compromise senators James Frank Ali and L. Heister Ball were selected for the remaining Senate terms. By 1905, however, the feud was renewed for one of the seats, and still a deadlock persisted. The stubborn Henry DuPont of Delaware refused to surrender, especially when he was about to bring up his biggest gun, his first cousin, T. Coleman DuPont, president of the DuPont Company. With Coleman DuPont, gas addicts finally met his match. Coley's first move was to smash Attucks' machine by luring his hacks away with bribes. Henry gave thousands of dollars to Sussex County Republicans. Coleman then had George Kennan, the old secretary for deceased Lamont DuPont, 1831-1884, write a now-famous article in Outlook magazine. George Kennan, by the way, was no relation to the 20th century globe-trotting presidential consultant of the same name. The title of this three-part article was Holding Up a State. It details the story of gas addicts, bribe after bribe, and scandal after scandal. Coleman was as efficient in organizing the campaign as he was ruthless in his threats. Henry felt things were going so well, he sailed off on a European cruise to relax his nerves. And in June, Attucks announced he was pulling out in the interest of the Republican Party. His 12-year hold on the party smashed in one short year by T. Coleman DuPont. On 12 June, the Republican caucus nominated Henry DuPont by a vote of 20 to 10, and he was now a U.S. Senator. Eight hours before DuPont's swearing in, Attucks boarded a Dover train bound for New York. He never returned to Delaware. He had failed in four separate attempts to become a senator from Delaware. The copper market soon fell as the 1907 Depression began, and Attucks' fortune disappeared. As Henry DuPont now sat in the halls of federal government, Suddenly, for some strange reason, the federal government began to hound addicts right out of business. A legal fight arose out of his gas deals and resulted in a federal court awarding $4 million against him. Addicts was reduced to hiding from subpoenas, living in poverty, and the hunt went on. Two years after his defeat in Delaware, process servers found him in a dreary Hoboken tenement, living under an assumed name. His gas and light were turned off for non-payment by a company that he had once owned. For 11 more years, the harassment went on. In 1919, the New York Times published an article headlined, Gas Man Held a Prisoner for Two Hours in Sheriff Harburger's Office, Three-Year Hunt for Him. 
The article noted that he had been sought for default on a $20,000 promissory note and that he was, quote, looking pale and worn and wearing a smeared drab raincoat. He had no lawyer. He called his brother to help him make bond. Gas addicts died at 328 West 57th Street in New York City at the home of his doctor, Rita Dunleavy, on 7 August 1919, a forgotten and broken man. He was buried in a still unmarked grave at Laurel Hill East in the chapel section. His story is known to few except possibly Delaware historians. We are definitely getting into our busy season for tours, and you are going to want to jump on some of these tours. We've got some great ones coming up. We've expanded our theme tours at Laurel Hill West, and I think you're going to like the direction we're going with this. First of all, on April 2nd at 10 a.m., that is a Sunday, there is a tour at Laurel Hill West called Sweet Souls, Laurel Hill West Confectionary Connections. Ice cream, candy, this will be even cough drops. <laughs> this, this is going to be a terrific tour. And that afternoon at 1 o'clock on the other side of the river at Laurel Hill East, it's a tour with our arborist, Beautiful Blooms, Spring Arbor Tour at Laurel Hill East. There's a Hot Spots and Storied Plots tour coming up on Saturday, April 8th from 10 a.m. until noon at Laurel Hill East. Tom Keels will be the guide on that. Tom has been doing tours at Laurel Hill for a long time, more than 10 years. He knows his stuff. I highly recommend that tour. You're going to hear from Tom next. He's doing a special segment on former Philadelphia Mayor Sam Ashbridge. Lady Sitting, author talk with Lorene Carey on Wednesday, April 12th, at 6.30 p.m. In her memoir, Lady Sitting, My Year with Nana at the End of Her Century, award-winning author Lorraine Carey recounts her experience living with and caring for a dying loved one. The top tour almost every year, unsinkable to unthinkable, Titanic Passengers of Laurel Hill. Saturday, April 15th, forget your taxes, go out to this tour. It starts at 1 o'clock, it goes until 4 o'clock because we are going to be in both cemeteries. There are at least a half a dozen people at each cemetery that Laura is going to talk about. And it's just a terrific tour if you're even in the least bit interested in the RMS Titanic. Russ Dodge is back for Liberty or Death, Revolutionary War Soldiers of Laurel Hill East on Sunday, April 16th at 1 p.m. For the Bees, Apiary and Candle Workshop on Sunday, April 16th at 11 a.m. at Laurel Hill West. Meet the Bees. <laughs> like Meet the Beatles, only it's Meet the Bees. Then there's a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour, Saturday, April 22nd at 10 a.m. at Laurel Hill West. That is an introductory tour. Spring Tree Salon, Sunday, April 23rd at 11 a.m., Hotspots Tour, its usual place, the last Friday of the month at Laurel Hill East at 10 a.m. There is, on April 29th, a Beardmobile family show. Spill the tea at a Victorian picnic with the Bearded Ladies Cabaret. That will be at 
2 o'clock on Saturday the 29th. And then I am giving the first of like five tours I give in five weeks. It's called Welcome to Franconia, A Slice of Philadelphia. I promise you a wonderful time. Sunday, April 30th, 1 p.m., Laurel Hill West. I will introduce you to everyone from Tenny Pendergrass and Grover Washington Jr. to Mama Dietz and Al Reach, whose name was on the baseball for more than 50 years. A lot of fun people there, and it's a very compact area, although we will be going off the paved path for just a brief a brief period there. So that's what's coming up with the tours. If you want to get information, if you want to get tickets, laurelhillphl.com slash events slash calendar. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. December 31st, 1900. The city of Philadelphia greets the 20th century. At 10 p.m., the Honorable Samuel H. Ashbridge, 78th Mayor of Philadelphia, kicked off the New Year's Eve festivities by reviewing a military parade on the south side of the magnificent new city hall. Ashbridge then repaired to the ornate reception room, where he welcomed his fellow citizens beneath a towering portrait of William Penn. Under a glittering bronze chandelier, a mountain of greenery decorated with red flowers bore the inscription, Philadelphia's welcome to the dawn of the 20th century. Evergreen garlands hung from the coffered ceiling, while the mahogany wainscoting was banked with palms, azaleas, and roses. The festive crowds in and around City Hall fell silent when, at five minutes to midnight, the entire structure was plunged into darkness. A lone bugler played taps from its roof. As the minute hands of the four gigantic clock faces on City Hall Tower touched the numeral twelve, the pitch-black building exploded with light. Crimson flames engulfed the massive structure, as 1,000 pounds of chemical red fire were ignited. Strings of 12,000 electric lights delineated every turret and mansard of the elaborate Second Empire edifice. Atop the tower, the 36-foot-tall statue of William Penn was enshrouded by silver showers cascading from the brim of his broad Quaker hat. The night sky was ablaze with a fiery tumult of bombs, skyrockets, and pyrotechnics of all description. The roar of the firework merged with the cheer of thousands of spectators, the twenty rounds of gunfire released by the assembled regiments, the crash of brass bands blasting out America, and the tintinabulation of church bells ringing across the city to create a truly deafening cacophony. The exuberant celebration was, in the words of one newspaper, yet another feather in the municipal cap of Philadelphia. Mayor Ashbridge remained on hand until nearly 3 a.m., greeting the throngs of citizens touring their new municipal palace. Yet the 52-year-old politician was back at City Hall only a few hours later, reviewing the first city-sponsored Mummers Parade. Flanked by his cabinet and other notables, 
Ashbridge watched from a stand on the North Plaza as 3,000 men and boys cavorted before him, dressed as clowns, Indians, hobos, wenches, and debutantes. Ashbridge even kept his aplomb when one especially inebriated mummer, clad in widow's weeds, tried to drag the Honorable Mayor from the stand to join him in a strut. Both Philadelphia and Samuel Ashbridge seemed to have much to celebrate as the 20th century dawned. The Quaker City was the third largest metropolis in the United States, with a population of 1.2 million. As the workshop of the world, its countless factories produced millions of dollars of goods each year, churning out everything from Baldwin steam locomotives to Whitman's chocolates. Philadelphia was also known as the City of Homes, where even a humble factory worker could afford a modest yet comfortable residence. Plans were being drawn up for the city's first rapid transit line, a combination elevated subway loop running the length of Market Street from Upper Darby to the Delaware River. Philadelphia's grandiose city hall, laden with mahogany and marble, was a worthy symbol of the wealthy and dynamic metropolis. Similarly, Samuel H. Ashbridge personified the confidence-swaggering nature of his hometown. Born to a distinguished yet modest Quaker family, Ashbridge worked his way up from a humble clerkship to control the third largest city in America. He won the mayor's office in 1899 with over 84% of the vote the largest margin of victory achieved by a Republican candidate up to that time. The popular Ashbridge was known as Stars and Stripe Sam for his ability to deliver a soul-stirring, flag-waving oration at the drop of a hat. Yet appearances were deceiving. Philadelphia in 1900 may have presented a prosperous and progressive face to the world, but it was infamous as the most politically corrupt city in America. Bribes, graft, and kickbacks, also known as boodle, were the common currency of municipal life. Pay-to-play was the order of the day, and Sam Ashbridge was the man to pay. Philadelphia politics was dominated by a contractor combine, a cartel of construction magnates like David Martin, John Mack, Sonny Jim McNichol and the Vare brothers, George, Edwin, and William. These contractor bosses enriched themselves on overpriced deals that cost taxpayers millions of dollars each year. Philadelphia's magnificent city hall was a glaring example of their power. Thanks to widespread graft, construction on the ostentatious edifice dragged on for over three decades, while its cost spiraled from $10 million to more than $24 million. When Mayor Ashbridge accepted the keys to the completed City Hall in June 1901, the outmoded structure had to be retrofitted with electricity and automatic elevators. Philadelphia essayist Agnes Replier sneeringly dismissed City Hall as that perfect miracle of ugliness and inconvenience, that really remarkable combination of bulk and insignificance. Besides the contractor combine, Philadelphia was controlled by an omnipotent Republican machine 
known as the organization, which handpicked the occupant of every political post. Philadelphia was a one-party town, with only 5% of voters registered as Democratic. The organization devoted itself to maintaining its power base and enriching both its leaders and its contractor overlords. Nearly all city employees were forced to make illegal, voluntary contributions to the organization, adding millions of dollars to its war chest. In his 1904 expose of the shame of the cities, muckraking journalist Lincoln Steffens pronounced Philadelphia the worst governed city in the country, as well as the most corrupt and the most contented. According to Steffens, Mayor Sam Ashbridge broke through all principles of moderate graft. The Philadelphia Municipal League denounced the Ashbridge administration as a crew of municipal pirates. Besides being known as Stars and Stripes Sam, Ashbridge had another moniker, the Boodle Mayor. Samuel Howell Ashbridge was born on December 5, 1848, and attended public schools. He worked as a druggist clerk before becoming bookkeeper in 1874 for a coal dealer and city councilman named Joseph B. Hancock. In 1878, Ashbridge fell out with Hancock, and opened his own coal business at 9th Street and Girard Avenue, across the street from his ex-boss. The two men became embroiled in a complicated legal battle. Hancock insinuated that his former bookkeeper had billed the city for non-existent deliveries of coal to police stations. He called Ashbridge a thief who had gotten away with large sums of money. Ashbridge brought suit for slander, claiming $20,000 in damages. After much legal squabbling, the suit was dismissed. By 1880, Ashbridge had a wife and young daughter, an unsavory reputation, a mountain of debt, and no solid business prospects. A cushy civil service job seemed like the safest bet. Pulling the strings on his few political contacts, Ashbridge wrangled an appointment as deputy coroner. In this post, he assisted the coroner with investigating all sudden, violent, and suspicious deaths and determining their cause. The coroner himself was an elected official who worked with the district attorney to forward cases to a grand jury if an inquest indicated illegal activity. Deputy coroner wasn't the most desirable career choice, but the yearly salary of $2,500 about $75,000 today, would save the Ashbridge family from the poorhouse. And the work was mostly clerical. There were qualified staff physicians who actually cut up the corpses and delivered medical diagnoses. Ashbridge worked his way up the ladder and in November 1886 was elected Philadelphia coroner for a three-year term at an annual salary of $5,000 nearly $160,000 today. Ashbridge would remain in this post for the next 13 years. He was involved in some of the most sensational murder trials of the period, culminating in the 1896 trial and execution of serial killer Herman Webster Mudgett, a.k.a. H. H. Holmes, a.k.a. The Devil in the White City. During this period, 
Ashbridge networked tirelessly, joining a variety of lodges, associations, and brotherhoods. His talent for impromptu patriotic speeches made him especially popular during the Spanish-American War. Ashbridge also sought the patronage of powerful contractor boss David Martin. In 1896, Martin attempted to railroad Ashbridge into office as sheriff, with disastrous results. During a riotous Republican County Convention, an army of policemen and hired thugs on Martin's payroll beat up and ejected supporters of the rival candidate. Although Ashbridge was declared the unanimous choice of the Republican Party for the office of sheriff, he failed to win the post and remained coroner. Despite this political setback, Ashbridge continued to cultivate the rich and powerful with Martin's assistance. In 1897, more than 100 prominent Republicans convened at the Manufacturers Club to honor Coroner Ashbridge at a gala dinner. Among them were the industrial magnates P.A.B. Widener and William Elkins, department store owners Jacob and Samuel Litt, and newspaper publisher Barclay Warburton. Ashbridge capped the evening with one of his surefire chauvinistic speeches, a passionate paean to his hometown. I love to live in Philadelphia, to extol its virtues and praise its institutions. Our homes are brighter and happier. Our children are prettier and better educated. The womanhood of Philadelphia, our mothers, wives, sisters, and daughters are the embodiment of purity and virtue. Our manhood possesses the nobler and more generous qualities of fidelity, patriotism, and courage. These are but a few of the many rich endowments to be grateful for. I ask no greater boon than to live in the enjoyment of such blessings, the confidence of the community and affection of friends. This I say to each of you in the fullness of my heart and the depth of my appreciation. Buoyed by such inspired oratory, Ashbridge was catapulted into the mayor's office in February 1899 by a plurality of over 100,000 votes. On the night of his victory, thousands of supporters carrying placards reading Our Choice, Samuel H. Ashbridge, and The Man of the People marched to the East Plaza of City Hall and serenaded the mayor-elect. One of Ashbridge's first acts was to openly break with his former patron David Martin, removing his fellow flunkies from important municipal offices. Although this move allowed the new mayor to brand himself as a reformer, his decision was purely pragmatic. Ashbridge had switched his allegiance to another political boss, Israel Durham, whose star had risen while Martin's had faded. While Ashbridge had courted the wealthy, he was elected mayor with debts of $40,000, more than $1 million today. These debts were quietly and discreetly satisfied by unknown parties before he took office. Shortly after the election, Ashbridge allegedly told his old friend, Postmaster Thomas L. Hicks, Tom, I have been elected mayor of Philadelphia. I have four years to serve. 
I have no further ambitions, I want no other office when I am out of this one, and I shall get out of this office all there is in it for Samuel H. Ashbridge. The new mayor was as good as his word. In 1901, the state legislature authorized 13 new streetcar franchises for the city of Philadelphia. In the normal order of things, all 13 would have gone to P.A.B. Widener, the trolley king of Philadelphia. But Matthew Kay, the newly elected U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania and head of the state Republican machine, was no friend of Widener. He ordered that the franchises be given to his ally, contractor boss John Mack. But, at the 11th hour, department store magnate John Wanamaker publicly offered an astronomical $2.5 million for the 13 franchises. Wanamaker, a one-time U.S. Postmaster General and political reformer, could have been expected to run the trolley lines in a much more honest and rider-friendly fashion than either Mack or Widener. But that didn't sway Mayor Ashbridge, who threw Wanamaker's letter with its generous offer into the wastebasket. He did the bidding of his political masters, Matthew Kay and Israel Durham, and awarded the 13 franchises to John Mack at a bargain basement price. Mack promptly cut a lucrative deal with Widener to become co-partners in the new trolley monopoly. We can only guess at how much Ashbridge realized for his part of the deal. John Wanamaker would remain a thorn in Ashbridge's side throughout his time as mayor. Wanamaker was assisted in this crusade by his son Thomas, the publisher and editor of the muckraking North American newspaper. The North American headlined a series of articles exposing the rampant corruption of the Ashbridge administration. Public school teachers and principals were awarded jobs for kicking back a hefty percentage of their meager salaries. Police officers assigned to protect public schools were actually running numbers rackets there and recruiting school children to play the numbers. The same police turned a blind eye on the sordid activities of speakeasies, gambling dens, and brothels, as long as their owners coughed up the cash. At one point, Ashbridge attempted to intimidate John and Thomas Wanamaker into stopping their attacks. The director of the Department of Public Safety, the man in charge of the city's police, called on John Wanamaker. He warned the merchant that he and his son were under constant surveillance by private investigators and that the city had gathered enough dirt to embarrass the two men publicly. Rather than caving, John Wanamaker exposed the scare tactics and called for a public investigation. Not surprisingly, Mayor Ashbridge refused to order one and denied everything. Instead, he plotted with city and state leaders to pass the Salus-Grady Libel Law, a draconian piece of legislation designed to prevent the press from exposing or criticizing his administration's excesses. Meanwhile, expanding the infrastructure of the fast-growing city proved to be an excellent way for Ashbridge to win public support and line his own pockets. Philadelphia's water supply was nationally notorious as polluted and unsafe, a major source of typhoid fever epidemics. 
After one vicious outbreak, which caused nearly a thousand deaths in 1898 and 99, Ashbridge asked the city councils to approve a $12 million bond issue. This amount would finance a system of interconnected reservoirs and pump stations with filtration beds surrounding the city. The decade-long effort ended up costing over $26 million, but by the time the filtration system was activated in 1909, deaths from typhoid dropped significantly, as did cases of diphtheria and scarlet fever. A noble public health initiative spearheaded by a far-sighted civic leader. No? Well, no. According to historian David Contasta, Ashbridge originally tried to kill a report compiled by the Philadelphia Board of Health, which linked the city's water supply with typhoid. When that failed, he proceeded to have the state legislature abolish the Board of Health and replace it with a bureau he could control. After the filtration plan was launched, Ashbridge introduced a pill that would allow a private company to appropriate take and use all water within this commonwealth and belonging to public or to private persons as it may require for its private purposes. In other words, he was attempting to allow his political cronies to buy the city's water system, in much the same way that Thomas Dolan had effectively owned the Philadelphia gas works during the 19th century. In 1902, Ashbridge proposed a parkway extending from Center City through northeast Philadelphia to the hamlet of Torresdale on the Delaware River. What was originally called the Torresdale Boulevard today extends north to Bucks County as the Roosevelt Boulevard, the traffic nightmare of northeast Philadelphia. In theory, the Ashbridge Boulevard plan again appears to be a noble and far-sighted concept a modern transportation link to facilitate business and residential growth throughout the then largely rural Northeast. In reality, it masked a land grab by Ashbridge's organization cronies, led by contractor Sonny Jim McNichol. Before the Parkway plan was publicly announced, these men established the Philadelphia Land Company. This concern purchased land throughout the Northeast from unsuspecting farmers, and then sold the property back to the city of Philadelphia for a generous return on their initial investments. To make sure that the boulevard went through all of the parcels owned by land company principals, the initial parkway design zigged and zagged in a haphazard manner. Future Mayor Rudolf Blankenberg, known as Old Dutch Cleanser for his stringent reform efforts, called the project the McNichol Boulevard. Blankenberg condemned it as the culmination of organization effrontery and thievery, which is open to curves as crooked as its projectors. Despite all of the political scandals plaguing his administration, Ashbridge remained personally popular. Reflecting Lincoln Steffen's assertion that Philadelphians were corrupt but contented, there was little public outcry over the revelation of these scandals. The people, Stephens conceded, seemed to prefer to be ruled by a known thief than by an ambitious reformer. 
Ashbridge reveled in the juicy perks and high profile that came with being the mayor of Philadelphia. In 1899, he hosted President William McKinley and other dignitaries at the unveiling of the equestrian statue of Ulysses S. Grant in East Fairmount Park. In April 1900, Ashbridge threw out the first ball at Columbia Park in Strawberry Mansion, the new home of the Philadelphia Athletics, before an overflow crowd of more than 10,000 spectators. Two months later, he welcomed President McKinley back to Philadelphia for the Republican National Convention. Ashbridge also hosted Prince Henry of Prussia during his state visit to Philadelphia in 1902. Prince Henry was so impressed by the mayor's hospitality that he asked his brother, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, to confer the Order of the Red Eagle upon Ashbridge. On March 7, 1900, the mayor's only child, Carlene Teresa Ashbridge, was married to Schuyler Armstrong in a lavish ceremony at Grace Temple Baptist Church on North Broad Street, that's the temple of Temple University. The church was just down the block from Ashbridge's own impressive townhouse at 2037 North Broad Street. The bride was exquisite in a gown of ivory white satin trimmed with flounces of duchess lace, her veil fastened with a pin of a huge sapphire surrounded by diamonds. After the ceremony, an equally luxurious reception was held at the Hotel Stratford, which wouldn't merge with the Bellevue to become the Bellevue Stratford until 1904. It was estimated that bridal gifts were in excess of $50,000. Ashbridge stepped down as mayor on April 5, 1903, announcing that he would seek no further political office. Instead, he became president of the Tradesmen's Trust and Savings Company. Sadly, Ashbridge had little time to enjoy the fortune he had accumulated during his four years as mayor. By 1905, he was seriously ill with Bright's disease, as chronic nephritis was then known. He died on March 24, 1906, at the age of 57. The man who took office with debts of $40,000 left an estate of $500,000, roughly $17 million today. Samuel Ashbridge is buried in Laurel Hill Cemetery West, the Ashland section, Lot 37, beneath a surprisingly restrained and tasteful monument. In its eulogy of the former mayor, even the reliably Republican inquirer seemed to struggle to come up with good things to say about him. The editorial begins, It was the custom for a portion of the official term of Samuel H. Ashbridge to assail him in bitter language. While acknowledging that there are those who will continue to hound his memory, the inquirer then lists several achievements of his administration. It starts with the water filtration system, calling the work in progress an iridescent dream, but one for which all Philadelphia is still anxiously waiting. The list ends with the planting of trees along the entire length of Broad Street. They have been neglected, it is true, the article notes, but the idea was an excellent one. Before Ashbridge died, 
Lincoln Steffens offered his own blistering postmortem in the shame of the cities, excoriating the boodle mayor for taking Philadelphia corruption and cronyism to new lows. Similarly, when Ashbridge stepped down as mayor, the Municipal League of Philadelphia issued its own political obituary, writing that the four years of the Ashbridge administration have passed into history, leaving behind them a scar on the fame and reputation of our city, which will be a long time healing. Never before, and let us hope never again, will there be such brazen defiance of public opinion, such flagrant disregard of public interest, such abuse of powers and responsibilities for private ends. Today, Samuel H. Ashbridge is a strong contender for the title of the most corrupt Philadelphia mayor. This is an honor as hard won and as dubious as being named the most debauched Roman emperor. Among his 98 fellow mayors to date, Ashbridge faces such tough competition as Sweet William Stokely, mayor from 1872 to 1881, who made a fortune from kickbacks during the construction of City Hall. Stokely's mausoleum in Laurel Hill East is even composed of the same granite as City Hall. Then there's Thomas B. Smith, mayor from 1916 to 1920. Smith was indicted by the district attorney for conspiracy to commit murder. He brought in hired thugs to throw a local election, only to have them kill a policeman in cold blood. But both Stokely and Smith were sour-faced, unsmiling men. There's something about Stars and Stripes Sam's cheerful insouciance his ability to deliver a heartwarming speech about mom and apple pie while robbing his city blind and threatening to destroy those who would stop him, that makes me think he does deserve the title of Worst Mayor Ever. If you'd like to learn more about Samuel H. Ashbridge, visit the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, where his papers reside. You can peruse his correspondence with William McKinley and other distinguished notables. And you can read the letter to the mayor from one Muggsy, which begins, I am a burglar and pickpocket, and I want to meet you sometime to get points on my business. This is Thomas Keels for All Bones Considered. I am sure that you know the first Capitol building of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It was built in Philadelphia between 1732 and 1735 on Chestnut Street, between 5th and 6th Streets. The locals called it the State House. It's still there, but nowadays we call it Independence Hall. The Declaration of Independence, the Articles of the Confederation, and the United States Constitution were all debated and signed within its walls. Because of increasing crowds in Philadelphia, then the United States Capitol, the legislature of the Commonwealth decided to move its business west. The first stop was Lancaster in 1799. That served as the capital for 13 years and the red brick federal style building they use now serves as the visitor center for Lancaster. 
But within a few years, arguments arose again about a permanent home for the Commonwealth government. Pennsylvania is one of four commonwealths in the United States, along with Kentucky, Virginia, and Massachusetts. So what's the difference between a state and a commonwealth? Legally, nothing. The next and so far final stop was in a town on the Susquehanna River, which had been settled in 1719 by an English trader named John Harris Sr. In 1785, John Harris Jr. laid out a town on his father's land, which he named Harrisburg. When it was incorporated in 1791, Harrisburg's population was less than 900 people. But by the time that the Pennsylvania State Legislature voted to move the state capital there in 1810, the population had jumped to 2,300 people. The state made $70,000 from its sale of the old state house to the city of Philadelphia, which soon rented it out to Charles Wilson Peale for his museum, as the U.S. capital had moved to Washington, D.C. in 1800. The Pennsylvania legislature commissioned local architect Stephen Hills as contractor and purchasing agent for what became known as the Hills Capital. The cornerstone was laid on 31 May 1819. It opened for business less than three years later, and it stood for 75 years. In 1877, Philadelphia architect James Hamilton Windrum 1840-1919, Laurel Hill West Marlboro section, was commissioned to add a one-story extension to the house side of the Hills Capitol. Everyone seemed happy with the structure. But on 2 February 1897 at 10.30 a.m., State Senator John C. Grady noticed the smell of smoke in the chamber. He sent two pages to investigate. They found nothing. But soon other senators noted the smell of smoke, and they followed their noses to the lieutenant governor's office, where some smoke wafted from under the closed door. While the senators formed a bucket brigade, state librarian Herman Miller ran to a fire alarm in the state library and summoned the local fire department at 12.30 p.m. Despite the efforts from all 11 of Harrisburg's fire departments, the fire was soon out of control in the sub-freezing temperatures, and by 4 p.m., the chambers of the House and the Senate were a smoldering mass of debris. Amazingly, no lives were lost, but many historic bills from colonial times were lost. That very evening, discussions began on a new capital, and the business of the Commonwealth was moved to the Grace Methodist Episcopal Church across the street from the pile of ashes. A Philadelphia Senator, C. Wesley Thomas, 1860-1907, Laurel Hill West Bryn Mawr section, proposed to move back to the city of brotherly love. And Philadelphia Mayor Charles F. Warwick, 1850-1913, Laurel Hill West Edgewood section, offered the state his city council chambers for as long as it was needed. But few people other than Philadelphians were interested in either proposal. Insurance paid the state $200,000 for the 
for the loss of the Hills building. The initial estimate to build another capital was $550,000. Governor Daniel Hastings approached professor of architecture from the University of Pennsylvania, Warren P. Laird, 1861-1948, Laurel Hill West Bryn Mawr section, for options. Although bids were open to all American architecture firms, specific invitations were sent to the Philadelphia firms Cope and Stewardson and Furness and Evans. Walter Cope, 1860-1902, and John Stewardson, 1858-1896, are remembered for their collegiate Gothic-style buildings at Princeton University, University of Pennsylvania, Bryn Mawr College, and others, as well as the College of Physicians building containing the Mütter Museum on 22nd Street and the Bell Tower at Laurel Hill West. Stewardson drowned in an ice skating accident on the Schuylkill. He's interred at Laurel Hill East, Section 14. Frank Furness, 1839-1912, whom I talked about in an earlier podcast, Building Philadelphia, is also interred at Laurel Hill East, Section S. The contract went to Chicago architect Henry Ives Cobb. He said that he could build the capital with the limited budget of $550,000. In April 1898, the Philadelphia contractor Alan B. Rourke, 1846-1899, Laurel Hill West Ashland section, submitted the lowest bid for construction. The heating, lighting, ventilating, and plumbing were to be provided by another Philadelphia contractor, James A. Palmer, 1843-1898, Laurel Hill West, Lansdowne section. At the groundbreaking ceremony on 2 May 1898, the Philadelphia Times editor, Alexander K. McClure, 1828-1909, Laurel Hill East, section G, gave the keynote. But even as it was being constructed, the building was almost universally declared ugly, even by the architect Ives himself. Some called it a barn, others a sugar factory. Governor Hastings was horrified. He said, there are a score of farmers' barns in Pennsylvania more attractive in appearance than this building. It is made of cheap mortar, looks like a hastily erected factory building, and is repulsive to the eye. Pennsylvania wanted something bigger and better. After another attempt to return the capital to Philadelphia, this time by Charles E. Voorhees, 1848-1902, Laurel Hill West Moreland section, the House and Senate agreed to build a third state capital and budgeted $4 million to do it. Governor William A. Stone signed the bill on 18 July 1901. A call went out to architects to submit their ideas no later than the 30th of November. But because of the 1897 debacle, only a few prominent architects made submissions, and just nine entries were received. Joseph Miller Houston, a 35-year-old resident of Germantown in Philadelphia, was selected. He had grand ideas, but little experience 
and had certainly never designed anything on the scale of the Capitol building. But then again, few people had. Almost immediately, some newspapers claimed the contest was rigged, but no evidence ever emerged to back that claim. A few years later, the same claim re-emerged. Joseph Miller Houston was the fifth of sixth children of Irish immigrants. He was born in Philadelphia in 1866. After completing his public school education in 1880, he went to work with John B. Ellison and Sons, a well-known Philadelphia businessman. John Barker Ellison, 1794-1865, and his son, William P. Ellison II, 1828-1906, are interred at Laurel Hill East, Section K. At age 17... Houston joined the architectural firm of Furnace and Sons for five years. And while with the firm, he learned Greek, Latin, and mathematics with a tutor. And he was admitted to Princeton in September 1888. There he was an honors student and a member of several artistic and literary societies. He also met many artists and architects who would remain his friends for life. During the summer between his freshman and sophomore years, he traveled to Europe with fellow Princetonians Frank Hayes, 1866 to 1930, Laurel Hill West Summit Section, Edward Redfield, and Alexander Sterling Calder, 1870-1945, Laurel Hill West Pencoid Section, whom I talked about in an earlier podcast. These four men made a sketching tour of Ireland, England, Belgium, and France. During his senior year of college, Houston won three gold medals for oratory and began to make note of the people he met and their impact on him. After graduating in 1892, Houston returned to Furnace and Sons, where he worked on the design for the Pennsylvania Railroad's Broad Street Station near City Hall in Philadelphia. In 1895, Houston left Furnace and set up his own firm. He spent the next two years working on the design of the Witherspoon Building at Juniper and Walnut Streets, built for the Presbyterian Board of Publications and Sabbath School Work. It's still there, an 11-story, steel-frame, E-shaped building faced with brick and granite. It is quite fancy, with terracotta decorative elements, both Corinthian and Ionic columns, statues, medallions, seals of various boards and agencies of the Presbyterian Church and of related Reformed churches. It is named for John Witherspoon, 1723-1794, an early president of Princeton University. Houston had his travel and college buddy Alexander Sterling Calder sculpt six historically prominent Presbyterians who stood in alcoves high on the building until 1961 when they were moved to the courtyard of the Presbyterian Historical Society at 425 Lombard Street in Philadelphia. When the Witherspoon building was completed, Houston moved his office there. Joseph Miller Houston joined all the right clubs, the Union League, the University Mason's Lodge, the T-Square Club, the Marion and Germantown Cricket Clubs, the Princeton Club of Philadelphia, and others. 
he met the right people, and he made his name known. Houston also hired a partner named Stanford B. Lewis, whom he had met while working at Furnace and Sons. Together, they had entered the 1897 Pennsylvania Capital Design Competition, but lost out to Cobb. In 1898, Joseph and his brother Samuel went on another tour, this time around the world, to see the great art and architecture of Europe, Arabia, and Asia. Joseph traveled sketchbook in hand and made drawings of the great buildings of Rome and Paris. He used these motifs in 1901, when he and Lewis entered the competition to design the new Capitol building in Harrisburg. For the dome, Houston chose a one-half scale replica of the dome of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. For the backdrop of the central rotunda, it was based on the grand staircase and triple arcaded gallery from the Paris Opera. The house chamber would be Italian Renaissance. The Senate, French Renaissance. The Supreme Court chamber would be Greek and Roman in design and the governor's reception area would be Tudor. The ladies' lounge, well, that would be adorned in the style of Louis XV. These designs dazzled the selection committee, and the firm of Houston and Lewis got the commission for the new Capitol building. He signed his contract in January 1902. He was to spend no more than $4 million and have the building ready for occupancy in 1906. Next went out the bids for construction. The lowest bid came from George F. Payne and Company, 1854-1906, Laurel Hill West Ashland section. Payne had been a member of the Washington Grays and served with the Artillery Corps during the infamous 1877 Pittsburgh Rail Strike. Payne and his partner, Charles G. Wetter, 1853-1939, Laurel Hill West Marion section, had an impressive portfolio. The Bullet Building on South 4th Street, the Crozier Building on Chestnut, the United Gas Improvement Company Building at Broad and Arch, the Wistar Institute at 36th and Spruce, the Lorraine Hotel at Broad and Fairmount, St. Joseph's Academy in Chestnut Hill, Residences for Peter A. B. Widener and William L. Elkins in Ashbourne, Pennsylvania, and three Newport, Rhode Island residencies. Payne's firm also became a subcontractor to John H. Sanderson, the Capital Special Furnishings contractor. Groundbreaking took place on the 2nd of November, 1902, but work was slow. There were delays in granite steel delivery. There was a strike at the quarry that slowed things even further. And then on the 25th of May, 1903, Payne's construction superintendent, Owen Roberts, 1855 to 1903, Laurel Hill West Moreland section, was killed when a wall collapsed. And it took Payne several months to replace him. Joseph Houston's attention to detail was exceptionally meticulous. Everything down to the last rosette and acanthus leaf, types of columns and pediments, were designed, drawn, and implemented in just the location that he envisioned. But the overseeing Board of Commissioners for Public Grounds and Buildings was not always happy with Houston, 
as both he and Payne seemed all too willing to conduct business on their own without contacting the commission. The commission had no authority other than to construct the building. Furnishing it was a separate matter entirely. But despite the friction, the Board of Commissioners hired Houston to also design the furnishings for the building. Bids for special furnishing contracts were opened on 7 June 1904. They were awarded to Philadelphian John H. Sanderson, 1856 to 1909, Laurel Hill East, Section W. More about him soon. Work continued through all weather conditions in an attempt to seat the legislature on 15 January 1905 when it was scheduled to elect a U.S. Senator. Pittsburgher Philander T. Knox, who had been appointed to the senatorial seat in 1904 upon the death of Republican boss Matthew Quay, was re-elected. Work continued on schedule until it truly looked like the Capitol building would be completed on the 1st of January, 1906, the date agreed upon in the original contract. Houston presented his final certificate on the 27th of July, 1906, and the commission met for the last time on the 15th of August, 1906, and they accepted Houston's certificate. Capitol dedication was scheduled for Thursday, 4 October 1906. Guest speaker was to be President Theodore Roosevelt, whose first comment upon seeing the new building was, This is the handsomest building I ever saw. The Carlisle Indian Band played Hail, Hail, the Gang's All Here, and everything seemed to be copacetic. Despite this being the age of graft and crooked politicians, in what muckraking journalist Lincoln Steffens had declared corrupt but content Pennsylvania. The Capitol building is 520 feet long, 272 feet tall. Philadelphia City Hall is twice as tall at 548 feet. 254 feet wide at its center ring, 212 feet at its two side wings. That's a footprint of nearly two and a half acres. The 94-foot diameter dome weighs 24,000 tons. The building houses the chambers for the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, the Pennsylvania Senate, and the Harrisburg Chambers for the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. The Capitol building contains 475 rooms. City Hall has almost 700 rooms. and has four floors, not including a mezzanine and a basement, the overall square footage is 442,560 square feet. Houston meticulously designed the large six-inch thick bronze doors at the Capitol's main entrance, decorated with scenes from the history of Philadelphia, such as the arrival of William Penn and his peace treaty with the Lenape. Busts of people who were important in the construction of the Capitol, like Governor Pennypacker, Senator Boyce Penrose, and Matthew Quay decorate the edges of the doors. A bust of Joseph Houston hides the door's keyhole. Governor Samuel Pennypacker was quite pleased with his new building, and he had no suspicion whatsoever that anything was done that wasn't on the up and up. The construction of the Capitol building had cost slightly less than the $4 million appropriation. 
But the furnishing of the building, including the artwork, had more than doubled that figure. Pennsylvania being Pennsylvania, people started looking for graft before the dedication was even made. In retrospect, Pennsylvania used an overly elaborate system for ordering and purchasing supplies, equipment, furnishings, landscaping state grounds, and altering or improving state-owned buildings. In 1896, the use of unit prices based on feet and pounds was instituted and gradually extended to cover an increasing number of items throughout the coming year. The per-foot rule was subject to abuse unless rigorously controlled, which it was not. Articles contracted for under the per-foot basis should have had a regular and well-defined system for taking measurements, but the rules even failed to differentiate linear feet versus square feet versus cubic feet. The purchasing system was later described as, quote, an excellent business selling air to the state, end quote. Articles contracted for under the per-pound basis should have had their maximum weight specified, but did not. The weight of furniture, for instance, could easily be increased by placing lead in the wooden legs. Now, as full disclosure, Joseph Miller Houston's magnificent estate, Oaks Cloister, on Wissahickon Drive in Germantown, has been owned for more than 20 years by a longtime acquaintance of mine, Dr. Russ Harris. He's another emergency physician. I've been there a few times. In fact, the Friends of Laurel Hill used it for a fundraiser a couple of years ago. I noticed there are metal chairs on the patio, which are staggeringly heavy. I can't help but think they might be some of the pay-by-the-pound furniture that was used to populate the Capitol building. This system of charging by the pound or by the foot had caused a great deal of confusion among competitive bidders. For instance, Philadelphia Furnishings retailer and experts, Strawbridge and Clothier, both of whose founders are interred at Laurel Hill West in the Summit section, tried to enter a bid on the furniture portion of the schedule, but they found both the schedule and the specifications, quote, unintelligible. The man who understood the system best was John H. Sanderson, the furniture dealer from Philadelphia, who was the only contractor to bid on every item of the special schedule. Now, when a reformed Democrat treasurer was elected in 1905, Sanderson seemed to know that he was about to get into trouble. Chester, Pennsylvania manufacturer William H. Berry was elected state treasurer, the only member of the Democratic Party elected to a state office between 1895 and 1934. Governor Pennypacker called Berry's election a freak of ill fortune. Sanderson sought rushed approval of his invoices from Public Works before the start of Barry's term, and between Election Day of 1905 and 2 May 1906, Sanderson pushed through more than $2 million in billings. During the last week, at least $950,000 was pushed through, some of it for work that was not yet completed. Barry started investigating capital expenditures as soon as he took his oath of office. He found plenty of irregularities and immediately started to publicize his findings. 
during a visit to Erie. He stated publicly that it will surprise the taxpayers to know that their capital costs nearer $10 million than four. Within a week, he was telling another crowd at Reading, yes, the state capital costs nearer $12 million than 10. Newspapers seized upon his words. Headlines started calling the new building the Palace of Graft. Barry, without proof, started naming names, including Governor Pennypacker, Architect Houston, Auditor General William P. Snyder, and others. Attorney General Hampton L. Carson, 1852-1929, Laurel Hill East Section J, compiled a book-length report in 1907. He called no witnesses, he took no testimony under oath, and he found no fault. He determined the capital's cost per cubic foot of contents, which was the usual architectural system of estimation, was a dollar four cents, inclusive of the furnishings and decorations. The national capital in Washington, that same cost was a dollar ten cents. New York's capital at Albany was two dollars. Well, in January 1907, Penny Packer was out as governor, and Edwin Sidney Stewart, 1853-1937, Laurel Hill West Marion section, was in. Stewart created a commission whose sole purpose was to investigate the alleged graft. This audit company showed initially that the Capitol Building Commission had overpaid Houston by $663. But when the mural and sculptural contract were completed, the architect would still be owed a net of $895. And when the final report of more than 3,500 pages was made public, it seemed to confirm what Barry had found the previous year. More than $12.5 million had been spent to construct, equip, and furnish the capital, and that more than $5 million of that had been fraudulently overcharged, mostly from three sources. One, inflated invoices from John H. Sanderson, two fraudulent bills for metallic furniture, three exaggerated commissions demanded by Joseph Houston. Warrants for the arrests of 14 men were issued on 18 September 1907. Six of them ended up interred at Laurel Hill East or West. Houston, Sanderson, Payne, Snyder, Wetter, and Wallace Boylow, 1864-1938, who's in Laurel Hill East, Section V. I will not go into the details of the trials, but on 12 March 1908, Sanderson, Shoemaker, Snyder, and Matthews were each given the maximum sentence allowed for conspiracy under Pennsylvania law. Two years in Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia and a $500 fine. Sanderson was undoubtedly the chief conspirator. For decades, items in the Capitol were jokingly named for him. The umbrella stands were Sanderson tubs, which he had bought for $14 and resold to the Commonwealth for $73.60. The $60 sofa that incoming State Treasurer Barry found in his office cost $552. It was a Sanderson sofa. Barry also discovered $1,800 paneling in his office that cost the state $15,000. A 
a $500 ceiling that cost $5,500, and flooring that was billed for $90,000 but wasn't worth a hundredth of its price. The Senate boot black stand cost $50 to make. It was purchased by Sanderson for $125. It measured 64 and a half square feet. He charged by the square foot at an inflated rate of $18.40, so that the price should have been $1,186.80, but Sanderson added a $432.50 markup to that. Sanderson died of Bright's disease in 1909, after his trial, but before he started to serve his sentence. He has a granite gravestone in the W section of Laurel Hill East, which has a pillow carved on it. Joseph Houston's lawyers got his trial postponed several times, and numerous witnesses against him died before they could testify. George Payne died in 1907, Matthews died of pneumonia in 1908, and of course Sanderson. Now, even more than a century later, it is difficult to prove who was guilty, although most evidence points to Sanderson as the biggest culprit. It's still uncertain whether Joseph Houston was completely unaware of the scandal or was just so consumed with the capital project that he became oblivious to the overcharges. Either way, he became the scapegoat. He was convicted on 29 April 1910 on circumstantial evidence for failing to carry out a duty verifying measurements and prices of furnishings supplied by John Sanderson, and that was not assigned to him under the contract. Author Owen Wister, trying to make sense of the trial, stated that the scandal was, quote, a government by knaves at the expense of fools, end quote. The final charge by the court was one of conspiracy to cheat and defraud the commonwealth. The dollar amount listed by the court was $23,000. Houston appealed his verdict, but he was sentenced on 15 October 1910, receiving six months to two years at Eastern State Penitentiary, the lowest sentence for any of the accused conspirators. His final appeal was turned down by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The guilty man Sanderson had died, and people were looking for somebody else who was guilty. Before going to jail, Houston announced to the press, The state capitol stands as a monument to my straightforwardness and honesty. I have never committed an act of fraud or dishonesty in public or in private life. Persecutions, malice, clamor convicted me. My monument will stand on Capitol Hill when my persecutors are dead, rotten, and forgotten. Joseph Miller Houston served just under seven months at Eastern State Penitentiary. He was paroled on 20 December 1911. He and his brother Samuel, 1869-1917, Laurel Hill East Section X, discreetly visited and toured the Capitol the next month so he could admire the murals and sculptures which had not yet been completed at the time of his sentencing. The magnificent artwork of the Capitol, murals by Red Rose Girl Violet Oakley and Vincent Maragliotti, bronze sculptors by Roland Hinton Perry, marbles by George Gray Barnard, 
Phenomenal Floor Tiles by Henry Chapman Mercer. Stained Glass by William Brantley Van Ingen. 1859-1955, Laurel Hill, West Philadelphia section. And much, much more. These were never suspected of being part of the graft. The artwork took another 20 years or more to complete, but it still greets you today when you visit the Capitol, which feels as much like a museum as it does a place to conduct the Commonwealth's business. Historians of the State Capitol building now tend to give Houston the benefit of the doubt, but his career was in a shambles after his imprisonment. He managed to get several small commissions, but his name will always be associated with scandal at the State Capitol building rather than with the giants of Philadelphia architecture like Notman, Strickland, Furness, Lebrun, Trumbauer, Windrum. He's interred in an isolated area of Laurel Hill West. It's the Radnor section. It's across Riders Ferry Road from the bulk of the cemetery in a section that's rarely visited except by family members and the groundskeeping crew. When I started researching Joseph Miller Houston, I thought he was a crook. I think I was wrong. I think he was a scapegoat for the shortcomings of the state and the dishonesty of others, especially Sanderson. He deserved better. Thankfully, his home has been restored to its former glory and is one of the most treasured living spaces in Philadelphia. I strongly recommend that you plan a day in Harrisburg to explore his lasting legacy. It's still considered one of the most beautiful state capitals in the world. In the mid-April edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, I will tell of a forgotten father of photography, John Carbett, the first man to use celluloid film and the man who determined the 35mm standard size before he moved on to become a pioneer in radiology. He's buried in an unmarked grave at Laurel Hill West. Look for that podcast on April 15th. The May edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, College Namesakes. Believe it or not, this will be number 50, the 50th episode of All Bones Considered. I will tell you about four people who have colleges named for them. Major Henry Biddle was the original namesake for what is now Johnson C. Smith University in North Carolina. Charles McAllister's name is attached to a liberal arts college in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was a donation from businessman Joseph Horton that allowed the University of Pennsylvania to start its Horton School of Business. And more than 150 years after the Bullock School for Boys was founded in Wilmington, Delaware, it took on the name of RMS Titanic survivor Eleanor Elkins Widener. Four namesakes for colleges and universities, all interred at Laurel Hill East.
located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the tiny lot across the street. Uh, There is an app you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakidwood. There is plenty of parking at both the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation, though, is probably the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk, or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, come up the hill, the Riders Ferry Road, and you will come to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. You can also download a special tour that I have recorded both from Pencoid to Barmouth and Barmouth to Pencoid. Each of these tours will lead you on a 40 to 45 minute audio walk that talks about people interred along the route through the cemetery. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are currently open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, of course, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West give frequent historic tours. Go to laurelhillphl.com slash events slash calendar. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and our activities. You can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook. Now, once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum tours. And as a member of the Friends, you also get at least two annual members-only podcasts, All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, people I do not talk about in the regular edition of All Bones Considered. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. Take a peek ahead at what's coming up in entertainment. I think you will be quite happy. Um, Also, the key to finding the gift shop online is click on support and then find the gift shop in the left-hand column. The story of Sam Ashbridge today was researched and narrated by Tom Keels. He's another volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East. Tom is also a historian who's published seven books about Philadelphia. You can find more information at his website, thomaskeels.com. If you like having guest speakers, please let me know. I've got a couple more lined up, and I'll know whether to seek more if you like. I just happen to think it's nice to get another perspective and another voice on here. And if I can get people who are as good as Tom Keels or Pat Rose, who did the one last month on Sarah York Stevenson, I will keep doing it. 
Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, who reminds you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. If you wish to contact me, joe at joelex.net. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I used for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Two invaluable references for gas addicts. The first is Gerard Colby, DuPont Dynasty, Behind the Nylon Curtain. I got it online for free. It's from Open Road Integrated Media in 1974 with a new edition in 1984. And the other is that George Kennan article that I mentioned in the podcast, Holding Up a State, The True Story of Addicts and Delaware. Again, I found it online. It's The Outlook, 7 February 1903, pages 277 to 283, 14 February 1903, pages 386 to 392, and 21 February 1903, pages 429 to 436. There were also many, many newspaper articles that I used for reference. For Joseph Miller Houston, the essential book, and and I would consider this an essential book if you're into Pennsylvania history at all, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous coffee table book. It's called Pennsylvania Capital Preservation Committee, or that's the author, and the title is Literature in Stone, the Hundred Year History of Pennsylvania's State Capital, copyright 2006, especially chapters 3 and five. I got so much information out of this book. I highly recommend it. Gorgeous pictures also of the statuary and of the murals. Then there is Paul B. Beers, Pennsylvania Politics Today and Yesterday, The Tolerable Accommodation. This is copyright 1980 by Keystone Books, Penn State. Uh, Mostly the prologue. It's called Rivalry Without Rancor. And then, by Governor Samuel W. Pennypacker, The Desecration and Profanation of the Pennsylvania Capitol, Leopold Classic Library, 1911. Plus, again, many, many newspaper articles, uh, especially during the trial. Um, I could access the Harrisburg newspapers from then and read some of the witnesses' testimony for and against Mr. Houston. Anyway... Hope you enjoyed the show today. I had a lot of fun putting it together. And uh, maybe I'll see you around the cemetery. Stay safe. Stay well.